everybody welcome to another episode of our mainline podcast this is the second episode in our war report series on the israel hamas war i'm joined again by john from defense bolton and eric shepler shep he is our desk chief for bolton for the borderlands for the middle east centcom area john also is on the bolton with us he does our strategic forecast i've also had them on multiple podcasts before so you probably recognize them before we get started here, check out the Lethal Minds Journal, a veteran and active duty publication focusing on foreign and military affairs, art, and culture. Take a look at the journal's Bulletin from the Borderlands, a bi-weekly foreign affairs publication from multiple talented intelligence analysts and independent journalists. Head over to lethalmindsjournal.substack.com or Instagram at lethal.minds.journal to see more. Also, please consider supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash analyzeeducate. Ko-fi, ko-fi.com slash analyze educate or substack analyzeeducate.substack.com. All those links can be found in the show notes below. And we'll head into the episode. Hey everybody, I'm here with John from the Defense Bulletin, and I'm also here with Eric Shepler. He's our CENTCOM desk chief for Bulletin from the Borderlands. And today we're going to be talking about the Israel Hamas war again. Uh, last time we did this, it's been a while, about a month and a half. So last time we recorded was October 24th, and a lot's happened since then. Uh, that was right before Israel fully launched its ground offensive into northern Gaza. And today it is December 7th. It's about uh, 6.30 Pacific time in the evening. And yeah, we'll just head right into it. We'll start off with the casualty numbers. Again, you got to keep in mind where the sourcing is for these numbers. So, for example, for Gaza, uh, this is coming from the Gazan Health Ministry, which is run by Hamas because Hamas is the governing authority in the Gaza Strip. They're claiming 17,177 killed and 46,000 injured. Israel is claiming 1,361 killed, uh, 8,736 injured. So in the October 7th attack, uh, there was about 1,200 people killed, and that was actually revised down by 200 since the last time we recorded because of issues with identifying remains. And then um, additionally, some Hamas members were actually wearing Israeli military uniforms during the attack when they were killed. So that's why you have that uh, discrepancy in the revision. And then real quick, uh, the casualty numbers that the IDF has taken inside Gaza you have 89 killed in action and more than 260 wounded. I, I don't know about you guys. I can't find a good number for the wounded. That 260 numbers from, I want to say, November 3rd. Um, there's been plenty more people wounded since then. I, I just don't have a good number, though, so that's really all I could cite. Uh, West Bank, you have 266 killed, 3,366 injured. The vast majority of those are Palestinians. Um, you've had a lot of clashes between Palestinian armed groups and the IDF inside the West Bank. And then you've also had an issue with uh, Israeli settlers in the West Bank are causing trouble in these Palestinian towns and villages as well. So that's where a lot of these casualties are coming from. In Lebanon, you had 122 killed. Most of those are uh, Hezbollah militants. Border clashes are still ongoing. They really haven't uh, stopped except for that week-long ceasefire period. Um, a few journalists in there as well. 
In Syria, you have 30 killed. That includes members of the Syrian Arab army and then also other armed groups in the area that have been clashing with the IDF. And in Egypt, you have nine injured. That gives us a total of 18,956 people killed in all those countries and areas and 58,102 injured. Again, those are reported casualties. There's really no way to confirm those right now. That's pretty much the best we got. And then uh, U.S. casualties since, I'll say October 17th, because that, that was when the first attack was actually launched against forces in Iraq and Syria, are 66. Those are all non-life-threatening injuries. I believe at least 25 of those are TBIs, and that's where we're at for casualties. A lot has come out since the last time we recorded, right? We kind of have a better picture of what exactly happened on October 7th. Uh, first off, the Times of Israel is claiming that 3,000 militants actually entered Israel. And back the last time we recorded, we only knew of 1,500. And the only reason we knew that is because 1,500 militants were killed inside Israel. But that number is now 3,000. And that includes Hamas and other armed groups such as uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad and such. That does not include Gazan civilians, though. A lot of Gazan civilians cross the border. Once all the chaos started to kind of take advantage of the situation, we don't know how many cross, uh, but it's certainly in the hundreds at the very least, but we don't have a concrete number for that. But I mean, looking at that number, I mean, that's, uh, I mean, what, about a brigade plus, regiment plus guys that, that were able to get inside Israel during that 72 hours? John? Yeah, I do think it, it is a very lot of them. I think, like you mentioned, right, 1,500 was the original number, but it's obviously been revised as the casualty numbers for, at least I believe since last we talked, um, have gone down from 1,500, at least Israeli casualties in the initial uh, October 7th attack have gone down from, I believe they were at 1,500 as well, and they've kind of gone down now to 1,200. I'm unaware if they've been revised at all. You mentioned a good point about the casualties within Gaza, right, since this offensive has started. Um, obviously a lot of these type of, you know, you know, these guys are known for, you know, they'll drag away bodies and things like that. I think, um, I think Shep could probably, uh, maybe speak more to this, but, you know, in, in Afghanistan, right. From what I've been able to read and, you know, talking to people, right. A lot of times, you know, you would count, you would do your BDA based off of how many, you know, you know, you know, drag, you know, you see that where they, you see where they drag the bodies. And so you could assume that that guy had died. They'd have to drag him away. Um, I don't, um, uh, and so I've heard that a couple of times, I've read in a good amount of books. Um, and so so I'm assuming we're going to see the same thing here. I think casualties in Gaza are going to be real iffy coming from at least uh, on the Hamas side of this um, uh, on this conflict. It's going to be I, I really don't think there's even going to be a way that we're going to be able to really fully confirm uh, e even when we get uh, more into this conflict or once it ends. But um, I do think that's something to note. Um, yeah, I think I but, think right now Israel is claiming that they've killed somewhere in the neighborhood of 5,000 Hamas militants. I'm personally taking that with a pretty big grain of salt because yeah, exactly. I, I don't know how exactly you would determine that when like they're still fighting in Gaza right now. Uh, in really in northern right. Gaza, you know, fighting is still pretty heavy. So I'm, I'm personally taking that with a grain of salt, but that's just me. And there's still bodies in buildings that haven't been even seen yet, right? We, we yeah, can you got to dig up all the, all the rubble and stuff like exactly. that because a lot of these buildings got leveled. And, you know, you got the tunnels, you got to work through and all that shit. Exactly. And we do know, right, there's some, something like how many was it about 100 fighters just surrendered or was it 300 fighters? Uh, this is the past day. Um, yeah, so uh, I, I think it was somewhere in, somewhere in the neighborhood of 100. And I'm 
I'm seeing some conflicting reporting on that. I definitely need to look into it more because I saw uh, somebody say that it was in the in the vicinity of Khan Yunus in southern Gaza, but I'm seeing more people, including geolocation as well, say that it's in northern Gaza. I I believe in the area of Jabalia, and then okay. some people are saying that this is these are hundred members of a Hamas battalion. But you have journalists on Twitter being like, hey, this guy works with me like he's not a Hamas member. He's a journalist. So there's there's a discrepancy there. And I need to look into that personally. Jeff, what do you got? Yeah, these all of these casualty numbers, especially at this point, are are you're absolutely right. We need to be taking them with a, a grain of salt. You know, that goes for both sides. I mean, you know, the Israelis have, uh, you know, targeted Mohammed Deef how many times? In the last decade and a half, you know, supposedly put him in a wheelchair. And each time they had thought that they had killed him, you know, that goes that goes for everybody that they're that they're supposedly putting in the ground. The other thing is, you know, a lot of the ordinance they're using, <laughs> you know, they're dropping buildings and they're they're using you know uh, higher order stuff that is 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 gonna you know ground ground up people and and yeah. and destroy destroy a lot of bodies. So it's gonna be a while before they you know, they, they can make these guarantees. Yes, we got these. Yes, we got these. And I, I know that their ISR is good, you know, it's as good as ours was in some of these recent conflicts uh, that, that we've had. But, you know, having having viewed ISR and having viewed strikes, you know, from those platforms and conflicts, it's it's hard to do an accurate BDA sometimes and guarantee that, yes, we got that guy, um, you know, especially from the air or, or you know, utilizing some of these other assets they're doing. Yeah, I mean, kind of kind of to the point you brought up at first, you know, how many how many times did we uh, supposedly kill like an Al Qaeda or Taliban leader just for the guy to pop up, you know, two and a half years later or whatever? It happens all the time. And then, you know, I mean, Israel themselves, they revise their numbers down from the October 7th attack. Right. So I, I imagine there's going to be some revision going on uh, in Gaza as well. It's, you know, it always happens as, as more time goes on. You know, it's easier to get an accurate count of casualties. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. This will this will tend to uh, to even its way out. These numbers will become more accurate now. Whether whether they will release some of those numbers or whether they will be uh, you know pretty um, um, uh, you know, open with uh, with yeah. their data, that's a whole that's another thing entirely. But uh, I would be willing to bet that even even their intel analysts don't have a clear picture of what exactly they've done and who they've taken off the list so far. Yeah, yeah, 100%. So last episode, we kind of touched on some of the politics that are around this operation and the war in general. Uh, Bibi is Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister. He's facing some pushback at home, um, which is not new. But, you know, in, in the face of this war, uh, it's definitely something to note, right? Maybe it's a little, it's a little more of important and worth noting than it is, you know, when they're trying to do judicial reform. Um, Yara Lapid, he is the opposition leader, and he actually called for Netanyahu to form an emergency government when the war first broke out, right, which he did, Netanyahu did. Uh, I can't I can't remember if Lapid was part of that or not. Um, but now Lapid is actually calling for BB to resign. Now, I will say uh, they're, they're not big fans of each other, right? I mean, Lapid is an opposition leader for a reason. He's not a big fan of BB. Um, but yeah, I mean, BB is facing some pushback in the face of this war, right? Which is is definitely something to note. Interestingly enough, Lapid is um 
He's just calling for BB to resign. So he's saying we could still have the war cabinet and Lacou could still lead that. I just don't want BB to lead it, which is interesting. Um, in the Likud party themselves uh, are not doing too hot in the polls right now. I mean, they've really taken a nosedive since the war began. If the election were held right now, uh, they would only take 18 seats in the Knesset as opposed to the 32 that they currently have. Jeff? Yeah, and just one thing I'd note, though, I think I think it's important to piggyback off what you just said. I think it's important to remember what was going on directly prior to um, October 7th. I, I'm not going to I'm not going to pretend that I'm an expert in, in domestic Israeli politics, but I mean, we, we all know, you know, it was placid on our TV screens for about a, more than a month uh, prior to October 7th, you know, what was going on. They were already calling for BBC already. And so I think that um, they, obviously they're going to use this, you know, the opposition um, are, are going to use this as, you know, to as this is kind of an impetus to the uh, the movement again to get him out. I, I do think there was a small uh period where you know they were going to work together right there's a really small period where they were going to work together but I, I i don't know if bb thought this was going to be a, some type of quick operation i feel like the israelis are um, well versed in in warfare enough to understand how complex this operation it was going to have to be and that it wasn't going to be like a quick one and done you know no you know one two type of done thing um uh, obviously they tried to do similar a similar type of operation you know not as large scale in 2014 they saw what happened so obviously they've learned some of these lessons before but um I, i'm i'm just i'm sometimes getting a little confused as to what bb's goals are I, and i think that was a big issue right that was causing some friction between u.s decision makers and israeli decision makers before they even went in it was like hey what do you want to do when you go in like what are your operational goals what are your strategic goals by conducting this operation and i think there was a long time where the Israelis weren't necessarily, either they were reticent to do so, or they didn't have any operational goals set out. And that's why the Americans were providing so much, um, uh, putting so much pressure on them to not do it. Um, I don't know if us kind of pulling back and giving them, you know, this kind of, you know, free hand and free will to do operate in Gaza as they see fit is indicative of them providing these operational goals or not. I, I can't say so for a fact. So, Jeff, what do you got? I think, that much like much like the United States, short-term political goals often are a huge factor in countries' national security divisions, both in wartime and in peacetime. And I, I believe I stated this the last time we got together. It's in BB's, I think it's in BB's best interest to keep hostilities going as long as possible, given what was happening uh, to him politically before the war broke out. Uh, he had... He had a lot of uh, corruption accusations. He had a huge opposition. People were in the streets. People were opposing him. Now hostilities are here. The nation is kind of galvanized around the flag, as often happens. They're focused on a pseudo-external enemy, uh, external according to them, but pseudo to the rest of the world. And they are, they are in a war. He, being a shrewd politician that he is, the man's not a fool, he knows that it's in his best interest to keep these hostilities going as long as possible because I think it insulates him from a lot of that, uh, a lot of those political enemies and a lot of that, uh, that threat, that internal threat from the government. And because of that, because of those short-term political goals, I think that everything he does will be designed to extend the, the hostilities, extend the war, so to speak, or to keep it at a medium to low simmer 
on into the future uh, so that he keeps that insulation around himself for as long as possible he can, until he can figure out a way to sail off into the sunset or retire to some villa somewhere completely insulated from, you know, legal prosecution. Yeah, and I think that's a great point, uh, you know, kind of to, you know, provide some type of longevity or, or another uh, portion to his political um, co- career. I, I think we see the same thing happening, arguably, in uh, Venezuela, right? A lot, many people are positive that the only reason he's making this big hub up is because there's a lot of political pressure at home that's gaining because obviously the economy is garbage. There's a lot of things going on with Maduro. And um, uh, obviously uh, invading or um, in, annexing the Essequibo region of Guyana is will, will provide this distraction, right? I think this war kind of always provides a distraction from economic woes, uh, from domestic economic woes, and from uh, the plight of the people at home a lot. Um, and I, I, not not necessarily saying it's a good thing to do, but but it is a political strategy that's often used, right? Well, uh, you know, I think obviously one of the first things Clausewitz says, right, is that war is an extension of politics, and doesn't also mean just trying to um, put your political, um, you know, you know. Uh, enforces political strategies on the geopolitical stage, war can also be an extension of domestic politics as well, right? I may go to war because um, I need a victory, right? Uh, in ancient Rome, uh, in the Republic and the Empire, one of the first things you did to cement your your hegemony in, in domestic politics was you go on campaign, right? We saw Crassus do this and get decimated by the Parthians. Now, if he had won and come back, he would have been the top guy in the triumvirate Maybe Caesar would not have been the first emperor. It may have been Crassus. Who knows? Right? But, you know, we see this happen a lot. And, and I think it's, that's going to be one thing of domestic politics that may never actually go away. It's, it's going to be going to be a constant kind of like with humans, with human nature as well. Like human nature is never going to go away. I think using war as an excuse to or um, a way to not necessarily cover up, but distract people from the domestic woes is, a, is going to be a continuing thing. And we see that we see that playing out right now. Yeah, well, uh, you know, war... Um... War gives people an enemy, and maybe this is a cynical take, but you know, I would I would argue that um, societies need an enemy to stay united. Again, that's probably a cynical take, but I'll I'll make that argument. Um, and if they don't have one abroad, then they're going to find one at home, right? And that's how you get a a society that's divided, like um like ours, for example, or Israel, or even Venezuela. You know, you brought up Venezuela and this issue with um, Essequibo, which they just annexed, is really the only issue which unites the Venezuelan people. It's something they're all the same page on that this is their territory, and it has been for, you know, over 100 years. And then going back to Israel, um, this is an issue they're all united on, right? I mean, they just had this horrible terrorist attack done to them. They're divided on things such as, you know, judicial reform, settlements in the West Bank, whatever. Um, but when it comes to having to deal with terrorism and having to, you know, combat that, they're generally speaking on the same page. It gives them an en- an enemy to focus on abroad, not one that's at home. Yeah, exactly. And, and not, not to be the, you know, that, that ancient Rome crazy guy, but I mean, I think anything can always translate back to, I mean, be compared back to them. But uh arguably the the reason why you know the, the civil wars were so continuous uh, between the triumvirate and other things is because they had been the roman republic they had been decimated right uh by the by the carthaginians right and there's a huge manpower problem that the economy was in the dumps um and so it was war after war after war you see people like sully you see people like the Gracchi brothers come to come into play and it's just constant conflict and it it 
it's exactly you know goes into what you were saying right it's, they just kept put, putting new enemies in front of the people sometimes being somebody within the populace right even um but as long as you have that new enemy to unite the people behind you you'll be okay and people will kind of look away from you know your misdoings yeah i mean try you know not to go on this tangent too much but uh I mean, look at look at Weimar Germany, right? I mean, the people were humiliated after World War One, and they were dealing with all this all these issues, um, this political strife. The economy was shit. Um, you know, occupation by the French and British, right? That were just doing whatever the fuck they wanted in Western Germany, and the Nazis gave people an enemy to focus on, right? And obviously, what became of that is horrible. But this this is just going to our point, right? That the the people needed an enemy, and they found one, and they were united. Yeah, hundred percent. I think that's a great example. I think that's one of the that's a great example that even like the layman would understand, right? Like someone who like maybe not be uh read into this stuff as much as we do, right? I think Nazi Germany is the biggest one. Um, I put it, I read it extensively on the way he did it, and you kind of see it in the same way. Right? Something horrible happened to the German people. They lost the war, right? And it was on a grand scale too. This wasn't like they lost some regional conflict with Russia or something like that. It's not like they lost this war against um the Russo-Japanese War, which arguably was on the grand scale, but not to the on the scale that obviously the First World War was. And so you know, it's just it was easy. I mean, uh, for Hitler to just find someone to blame. I mean, he could have honestly blamed any minority group. He chose he he chose who he chose. Um, he could have blamed any minority group, and I think people would have uh followed him behind that. And so I think BB is, is still is still in trouble. And now we're now that this uh, I don't want to say the uh, conflict has plateaued at all, um, because, you know, there's still a lot of room for escalation here. And we'll, we'll, we'll get into that uh, later as well. You know, the expansion of the conflict as well later. Um, but I think that uh, now that it, essentially the the uh, existential nature of it, right, we're, we're fighting for our survival. I think there is really our understanding now, like within the government, they're no longer fighting for their survival. I, I, they may be. Uh, signaling that but they're not physically actually doing that they're not trying to get hamas fighters and uh who came in waves over the border out of the out of israel now and so now they're starting to settle in they all right we're safe now and it's like hey i don't i, I don't like you though you know what i mean it's kind of, it, and that not to really simplify it too much but it's kind of like that. It's like well we're in the same room but only because we had to be now we don't have to be and so now i'm going to you know kind of use this situation to kind of benefit my political strategy or um, ideology whatever however they want to put it yeah 100 percent. and we we actually can uh just move on to the expansion of the conflict here the war against hamas is uh in full swing obviously interestingly enough uh, israel has said that the war against hamas extends globally so this is not just in gaza or the west bank where hamas does have a small presence uh this includes places like qatar in Turkey, where there is some Hamas political leadership, Turkey uh, wasn't too happy about that statement, right? Um, obviously, they don't want a, a foreign nation conducting assassination attempts on their uh, on their land, and they are a NATO nation, so that's something to uh, think about. But yeah, I think that's important to note. And also, um, as I alluded to, this includes politicians too, not just not just militants. Hamas is a political party. The Al-Qassam brigades are the armed wing, but Hamas at its base is a political party. They have the Politburo and all that stuff, which live in Qatar. They live lavish lives, but uh, Israel is Israel is at war with Hamas as an organization everywhere they are. Jeff, what do you got? 
you know, you guys are talking about, you know, the, the politics of war, you know, John quoted Clausewitz, um, the, the statement that this is a global conflict. Well, that feeds into those short-term political goals too, right? Because if you can shape this as a global conflict, one that is more uh, ideological in nature, where we have, we have to defeat the enemy everywhere. The enemy is all around us. We have to go to war in all reaches of the planet. That's, that's a great way to keep that conflict going. That's a great way to keep that war going indefinitely. And if you're thinking about um, you know, those short-term into long-term political goals and if, you know, we're under agreement that people and leadership are going to do what benefits them oftentimes more than what benefits the country. And you know, we already discussed that it may be in, uh, in, that, in, in Netanyahu's best interest to keep the conflict going. It'd be in his interest to shape this as a global conflict, similar to not not exactly the same, but similar to the war on terror. Right. You know, if we have, we're going to have a war on terrorism, we're going to have a war on terrorism worldwide. We're going to have yeah. a war on terrorism everywhere. We're going to we're, we're going to go to war with with terrorism in all in all its shapes and all its sizes. And that's a war that you can conceivably keep going indefinitely. And if you know, I think it's in his best interest to shape the conflict as such, given given what's going on with him domestically, as we've already discussed. Yeah, well, even, you know, some of the messaging with this war, um, Bibi himself is making a lot of comparisons to ISIS. So, I mean, you could kind of plausibly think like, okay, well, when when do these lines kind of start to blur, right? When does Hamas actually become ISIS? When do strikes against ISIS become linked to the war against Hamas? You know, and you were talking about... Um, how the messaging of this war being global, right? That that plays into the short-term political goals. I looked it up and Israel's next election uh, is in 2026, October, at the very latest, right? Obviously, Bibi could call snap elections right now if he wanted to. He probably wouldn't do too great. So I don't imagine he'll do that. But he's got until, you know, late 2026 to kind of keep the ball rolling on this and, and drum up, uh, you know, drum up support for the war and hope that kind of saves his ask. Sure. And like we already said, that you know, he, he knows he's got that domestic threat. He knows that as long as he can keep this conflict going, it, it insulates him partially from any of that threat because any, anybody, anybody targeting him directly now um, is kind of going against the grain of the political leadership in time of war, which yeah. is very dangerous, which is a dangerous thing to do in any country. That used to be a day. They used to throw you in prison in the United States doing yep. that. Eugene, yep. Eugene Gibbs went to jail during World War One for doing a similar a similar thing to that. So he's he's created a situation where his political enemies have to kind of you know bite their tongues a little bit or choose their choose their rhetoric very carefully uh, when challenging him on this. And that as long as the war goes on, he has that advantage. John, what do you got? Yeah, and I, th I think it's real interesting that, right, we, you guys just talked about how, how BB's trying to frame this, or maybe the Israelis as a whole are trying to frame it as a global conflict from the start. What, meanwhile, we see, right, we've seen the conflict expand a bit. I, by no means is this a global conflict. But on the flip side of this, we see the uh, the Biden administration, or more so, you, we could just keep it to the U.S. now, you know, not try to get too po political here, but we, we've seen them frame it as um, this conflict has not expanded at all. We've seen them say this multiple times when clearly it hasn't. Arguably, their actions may have potentiated the escalations by the Wheaties and other things, right? And the Wheaties are 
the Houthis are so I keep saying Houthis. The Houthis are clearly emboldened by our by our non-action, but I mean by our inaction in the Red Sea and then the surrounding region. I think, um, and arguably our inaction in the surrounding region is what ca- caused them to be emboldened to to even begin these attacks on on commercial and naval shipping in the Red Sea. Um, I don't think uh if we had systematically you know you know struck um you know the the places that were striking these uh U.S. bases after uh, October 7th. I'm not saying, you know, going there and some carpet bombing campaign, as many people like to say. Um, I, I don't know when the last time we did carpet bombing. Uh, but, you know, we see that na- that term being dropped now. I think that goes to ignorance and not people deliberately trying to be uh, be wrong. Um, but uh, if we, you know, kind of focus more on precision strikes directly after the October 7th attacks, um, I think it would have been, maybe we wouldn't see the Iranians push their properties to to uh, kind of escalate the conflict like we've seen so far. Now, has it? do we see state-on-state conflict going on? Of course not, right? But uh, I think Iran, uh, Iran, just like I, you know, me and Shep and, and you were talking in the last one, you, Shep, and I were talking in the last one, uh, saying how the, the Iran, Iran is content to keep this below the threshold of, of uh, conventional warfare with another state. And, and they're going to keep doing that until they're unable to. And so far, I, if we're going to keep uh, responding like this, and I, you know, I, this may be diverting a bit from what you guys were just talking about, if we're going to continue to respond or lack thereof, um, uh, Iran is going to keep on you know, pursuing this strategy, right? By, by with and through their proxies, attack U.S. Um, forces uh, in the Red Sea and, and commercial shipping in the Red Sea and U.S. bases as well. Now, I caveat that point by going back to a point that you made before, Brody, uh, uh, but before I just uh, started speaking about how a lot of times we've attributed some of these attacks that may not necessarily be um, from, you know, be part of this conflict, right? Uh, obviously, and I think Shep mentioned this as well, right? The war against ISIS is still going on, right? That's still a thing. So just because we struck an ISIS compound or an ISIS facility or something like that does not necessarily mean that we were responding to this attack. Now, are the non-state proxies going to be, you know, p- picking this apart this much? Probably not. And I think that's the thing that uh, I believe, I don't remember who I was talking to. It was probably one of you two about how the idea that uh, sailing an Ohio-class uh, submarine um, with 150, you know, Tomahawk missiles isn't going to scare the Houthis or um, ISIS or Hamas or Hezbollah or um, any of the IRI um, groups at all. That's, met, that's, some, that's a deterrent really only against state actors in the region. And as long as Iran decides to keep um, um, combating the United States and our allies and partners in the region through their proxies, that you know, conventional conventional deterrence means nothing. And so this is why sometimes kinetic deterrence is, is a thing, right? You can't just uh, do um, non-kinetic coercion. That's not going to work. Um, you do have to respond to these attacks, and I think the lack, our lack of a response, right? The the Houthis literally went in a helicopter. Um, landed on the ship, took it and sailed it back. Um, and, and obviously there's a whole nother, and, and we know one responded to it. You know, they've been firing missiles at our ships and the administration won't even admit, are too scared to admit that they've even been firing the missiles at our ships. But then at the same time, they won't even say they've been firing the missiles at commercial shipping, right? So that so the Houthis are just supposed to be firing missiles off for no reason. They're just wasting their missile stocks that they don't have a lot of, right? Um, <laughs> you know, so it just doesn't make much sense. And so I, obviously action uh, is needed in this conflict. Obviously, I'm not saying carpet bomb Yemen, right? But there does need to be a response. Um, now, there have been a lot of explosions in, in, uh, the, in the capital of Yemen uh, and in the 
in the uh, Houthi stronghold in Yemen, right? But they haven't really necessarily, no one's taken, we've den heavily denied it. The Israelis haven't really talked about it that much. Um, uh, arguably, I don't see the Israelis flying a sortie that long while they're so focused on, uh, that far away while they're so focused on Gaza right now. Now, if anyone would do it, it would be them with the United States, right? But I, I, this could have been as something like uh, someone smoking a cigarette in a weapons depot or something like that. You know, who knows what, it's, what, what it was, and I don't know if there's been clarification. But just to quickly wrap up my point, I do think action is definitely needed. And I do think uh, our, our U.S. inaction in the region has caused this uh, conflict to maybe spiral, not necessarily out of control yet. I don't think we're there yet, but it has to spiral uh, to get to definitely widen uh, in the region. And uh, I think one last thing that I mentioned, right, is our allies and partners, not just in the region, but who are part of these multinational battle groups and other things. Yeah, I think I got allies and partners in there three times so far. <laughs> but our allies and partners that's for in the region have... Uh, are looking to us to our response. Obviously, they're gonna they're gonna um, escalate or deescalate their responses. Our, to, adversary, uh, our adversaries are as well. Everybody's yeah, looking. Oh yeah, exactly. Everyone's looking to us. Yeah, exactly. That's perfect. Everyone's looking to us to react, and we're not reacting. So the people, our adversaries, are like, "Wow, it's open season now, right?" And I, I and I we kind of start to see that. We're starting starting to see that a bit now. Sorry for the long winded uh, <laughs> response. No, you're good. I mean, real quick to your point. Um, there needs to be a response to this. I mean, particularly to the action uh, that the Houthis are are doing right now. I'm not saying carpet bomb Yemen like you were saying, but I mean, as the world's sole superpower, there's got to be something we could do. We don't have to go as far as carpet bombing Yemen, but there's got to be something. Shep, what do you got? Yeah, I think I think John is uh, is absolutely right that it's in Iran's best interest to keep this uh, at a low simmer for as long as possible. The and you know that that translates into these attacks we've been seeing on U.S. assets in Iraq and Syria, which that's nothing new. That that's been going on ever since we've had forces in Iraq and Syria. There's you know it, for people that work over there, it's you know a weekly occurrence to hear. Uh, the incoming, you know, siren and uh, have a couple of couple of unguided rockets or maybe a drone with an explosive st strap to it, you know, fly in over something. That's that's normal. I, I do. Yeah, and real quick, the green zone, the green zone just got attacked within the past two hours. In right. There we, yeah, I just there, there we go. Um, and so these these types of, you know, attacks when they they tell their proxies in those countries to exert a little pressure on U.S. assets. We should expect that, and we are kind of prepared for that. That that's that there the infrastructure is in place, you know, with that in mind. Um, since we did, we are getting into the broadening of the conflict and the risk of of the conflict escalating and spilling over to other geographic areas. I know me and John did a little a, kind of a deep dive on the Houthis this last bulletin. Um, they're not my wheelhouse. They weren't before this. They are quickly becoming it um, because what I worry is, you know, if if Iran is a rational actor, which I think they are, and I think uh, John's right in that it, it is in their best interest to keep this at a low simmer, I worry how much actual control they have over some of their proxies anymore, specifically the Houthi movement. Because if there is one thing that is going to get 
um, multinational military attention, it is threatening a key shipping lane. And they, you know, I, I, from a tactical standpoint, I was actually impressed with them. I mean, and I think everybody should take them a bit more seriously than they were. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're talking a rotary wing VBSS, uh, you know, uncontested though it was, uh, but it was a successful one. You know, and we can pick apart their weapons handling and their equipment all we want, but they still accomplished the mission and they look like they had trained for it. They look like they had rehearsed it and they look like, you know, they look like they knew what they were doing. Um, and they're continuing to do this. If, if it's in Iran's interest to keep this, you know, this conflict ongoing, but localized and not in danger of turning into a state v state conflict, the actions of the Houthis make no sense to me, which is why I think they may be uh, going a bit too far or, um, you know, misinterpreting their orders from Tehran or just kind of acting on their own. Uh, now, from, from a standpoint of what their motivation is, uh, I'm not... I'm not altogether sure. You know, I don't know if you guys have ever read The Godfather, but there's a there's a portion in that book where where Michael is asking his dad how he was able to get the loyalty of a guy like Luca Brasi, and uh, you know, there's a great quote uh, in the book anyway that uh, you know there are men in this world who uh, walk around screaming "Kill me, kill me" to anybody that will listen. And it's perfect here because the actions of this group have gotten them noticed by just about everybody on the international scene. And that doesn't make any sense to me from the Houthi perspective, because now you're threatening everybody. You're threatening China. You're threatening, uh, you know, India. You're threatening uh, everybody in Asia. You're threatening us. You're threatening, you know, you're threatening a key international trade route. And you are, are basically begging for uh, one or more large powers to come in with their military might and eliminate you. And I don't understand it from a rational acting standpoint, but I, I do think that uh, they are either going above and beyond any orders they are getting from Tehran or have begun acting uh, on their own without, without Iranian direction. Yeah, and you know, there's there's um there was this incident, I can't remember the ship's name, where they uh pirates boarded this ship in uh in the region briefly. The US Navy, I think it was the Mason, uh rushed to the scene, right, and they were able to uh dispatch a VBSS team that basically chased down these pirates. I think there was five of them, right? These pirates immediately left this commercial ship that they tried to hijack. The Navy chased them down, whatever. Um, and the Pentagon is saying that these guys are Somali pirates and not Houthis, which is interesting because if you're looking at the area, it's pretty fucking far from Somalia, right? Not only that, but right after this incident happened, or maybe a couple hours after, but in the same area, the Houthis fired missiles at this commercial ship and the Mason. So I think there's a legitimate question as to, okay, well, maybe these pirates were Somalis, but what were they doing there? Were they working with the Houthis? Is that is that possible? Is that what happened? Because you know, why would the Houthis just determine we're going to fire missiles at this fucking ship that just got boarded by Somali pirates two hours ago? I don't know. I think you could definitely ask that question. And if that's the case, 
then that's a big issue because that kind of lends to your point, Shep, about what's going on with the Houthis. Are they, it kind of seems like they're going off the reservation. If these guys are kind of uh, subcontracting out to Somali pirates, I mean, that's, that's just going to piss off everybody in the region. Well, not only that, we have, you know, since this conflict began, they've been doing things that to me are, and, you know, to you guys as well, who understand kind of this, this type of thing are a bit, are a bit unprecedented. To your average layperson, they hear, oh, a couple of um, cruise missiles were fired uh, towards Israel from Yemen that were shot down by, uh, you know, a, an American destroyer. Okay. But then you guys got to think about it. You look on a map and we go cruise missiles fired from Yemen towards Israel. That's that's interesting, and that's a bit bolder than anything we've seen. And then immediately after that, they fired, I believe, well, I don't know the number, I haven't been keeping track, but at least two uh, ballistic missiles that were intercepted by Israel's anti-ballistic missile defense system. Now you're getting into ballistic missile territory. And for, for a non-state actor to have ballistic missile capability with those type of ranges. I mean, we're talking medium range ballistic missiles that fall right within that MRBMs uh, category. I mean, we've had, we've had treaties with other superpowers limiting MRBMs, specifically yeah. Russia. The treaty has expired now, but we have, we've had international treaties specifically limiting, limiting that weapons class. And now we have a non-state actor that possesses, that weaponry and is also willing to use it um i don't believe an action like that was directed by tehran i don't i don't think that tehran told them to to fire those weapons at, at israel uh, i don't understand it from from a rational actor standpoint uh because like we've said it's in the iranians best interest to keep this going at you know the below intensity conflict level low to medium intensity conflict level that we've seen it not to get into because when you start exchanging ballistic missiles back and forth with people that can go sideways very, very quickly. And so what are they doing? And I don't know. I don't, I don't understand their motivations here for taking the action they've taken, threatening international shipping lanes, uh, shooting ballistic missiles at people firing on the carney. I mean, the carney is definitely going to get a presidential unit citation out of this. Yeah. Because as they should. Every, as they should, as yeah. they absolutely should. Uh, they're doing a lot of work over there for one DDG, which is impressive. But I don't understand what the Houthis are doing other than begging everybody to come kill them. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think you mentioned a great point, right? It's not rational. And I think because they, they have uh, these kind of uh, so many strategic assets, you could call them, right? Uh, 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 medium-range ballistic missiles, cruise missiles, right? Something that we don't necessarily <clears throat> normally see non-state actors have, right? I, I think uh, sometimes, and, and I've made this mistake as well, um, trying to, uh, I look at them now as a as Yemen, right? A lot When a lot of people say Yemen on Twitter and stuff, or X, whatever you want to call it now, right? They're just referring, they're actually referring to the Houthis, right? But there's multiple different areas in Yemen that they don't control, right? They may control a lot of the big hubs, the, the major ports and things, but Yemen is, is still technically in a civil war. I, I, I'm not 100%, but I do believe they have a, kind of an agreement going on right now um, with the Saudis and, and the other side uh, within Yemen. But the thing is, they're still a non-state actor. And so that's the thing, right? They're not a rational actor, right? So And so this is essentially what we're seeing is like, this, this is kind of like what happens if ISIS gets cruising ballistic missiles, right? 
Um, and so, it, and uh, I do think obviously ISIS would would have way less restraint uh, in using this. But I, I do I do definitely think that uh, the, the, they're not necessarily rational actors, the Houthis. And, and it would be really, really interesting to see. And I think Shep mentioned a great point. It would be really interesting to see if the Iranians decide to rein them in or not, or if the Iranians decide to just kind of let them go. But at some point, yeah, Shep made a great point. Uh, he alluded to a great point as well, um, that if if they are kind of off the rails here and off of the, the kind of mission plan that, that was kind of set out between them and IRGC entities, um, uh, what happens? Are they going to mess up this kind of strategy and sports stratagem that uh, Iran has kind of set out for um, for them? Uh, and uh, it, it, you mentioned to this idea, the, the idea of like calling out, you know, just somebody kill me. And I think that's a great thing because they could also be trying to cement themselves as, you know, I think we see a kind of fight for who's going to be the Muslim nation in the region, the premier Muslim nation in the region. Right. And, and our, uh, normally, right, the argument is generally between Saudi Arabia or Iran, like is it, it's going to be one of those two, right? But we see Turkey coming in here as well, right? We see Turkey talking about this as well. Um, uh, I, I think one thing that people forget a lot, not to go off on a tangent though, is that Turkey has a very large Muslim population. They may be part of NATO, but they're not necessarily, by no means, in my own personal opinion, are are they a Western country, right? I, I do think uh, they're, they're a little more authoritarian than most people would like to admit, I think. Uh, obviously, Erdogan, we saw this coup or fake coup, whatever you want to call it. I still think it's pretty inconclusive what that was that happened years ago. Um, and then we saw him cement his power even more after that. But I think the biggest thing is the look who came out into the streets in support of him. It was a lot of these radical Islamic elements and then also just um, uh, Muslim entities in general. And I'm not saying entities like um uh, any type of terrorist group or insurgent group, but just Muslim parties and things and party members, that the Muslim population came out uh, in force for him at, at big time. And so we kind of see this fight going on in the region for who's going to be this, be this. And maybe the maybe the Houthis are trying to throw their, their, uh, their, their um, uh, what's the term, their ring in the hat or, or their hat in the ring that it, um, uh, in the, for the running of this. Obviously, I mean, what are the odds that they come out on top of this as the four run above Saudi Arabia, Iran, or, um, Turkey, but it it's we do see them exercising like Shep, like Brody just said, like you guys just said, we do see them exercising uh, uh, and doing actions that are just Iran could not have uh, sanctioned uh, prior. And so maybe it's their attempt to kind of gain more, not only gain more independence from Iran, but maybe find some other type of foreign backing other than Iran, because maybe they don't want to. Uh, they're kind of a little bit tired of being under Iran's tutelage. Um, uh, uh, and I'm very interested to see this kind of segues into another point of mine. I'm very interested to see how China handles this, right? Well, uh, we've we've arguably seen them not handle it, right? When those missiles, when a lot of the, some of these missiles came in initially, um, uh, came in initially, they uh, they did nothing, right? Uh, and I think that's literally the quote from the DOD spokesperson was, uh, two Chinese ships were in the region, warships were in the region, and they did nothing." Um, so I do think it's a very big point to uh, uh, note. Um, uh, and another thing, there's multiple. Uh, oh yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I agree with you, man. I absolutely, and, you know, that from the American perspective, which is you know mine, I, I still reside here and call myself an American. I'll root for us, but the the actions of China, they're our biggest peer competitor, near peer competitor, however you want to put it. Um, the recent actions by them over there. Don't make them look good. And 
you know, that's that still shows the international community, at least from our standpoint, that, you know, we have the capability to um, live up to our responsibilities as a superpower. There's a lot that goes along with it, that goes along with being a superpower. One of the things that goes along with being a superpower is being able to use that power for the benefit of all when the situation comes around. So, you know, the um, joint task, you know, the joint anti-piracy task force in that region that the U.S. is in on, we were able to take action quickly and and support that mission. Well, China China's forces that they had committed to this task force apparently did nothing. Um, and, you know, that that could pay off in the internet. You know, that could pay off. Other countries are going to see stuff like that. Other countries see like, oh, the United States is still willing to do stuff. Oh, the United States is still willing to defend our, um, you know, our economic interests, you know, when, it's, when the time arises. Okay. And they're also going to see, oh, well, China is not willing to do that. Why didn't they do that this year? Why didn't, you know, and it might get people thinking about which, if you're a believer in kind of the, the bipolar world that is approaching or the tripolar world that is approaching, it's going to get people thinking about which ideological side they want to they want to fall under. Um, I'm I'm happy that <laughs> I'm happy from an American standpoint that you know the Navy took action and did what it did down there. I think they could do a little bit more. I think our our administration and our regime right now could do a little bit more um, in regards to that threat. Because, like you said, the actions of that group don't make sense from a state actor standpoint, and that's what convinces me that they're not taking their orders from Iran, which also means that any action taken against them uh, by, you know, one country or multiple countries uh, could, you know, is not going to get a retaliatory response that, that it might get otherwise. Uh, the Iranians might have to save face, same way they do every other time we hit something that they don't like. But if this group is acting in a way that, you know, Iran doesn't like and is doing things that might suck them into trouble, they might not even retaliate to action taken against them at this point. Because I don't think, you know, I don't know what kind of phone calls or text messages are being exchanged between Yemen and Tehran, but I can't, you know, I, I can't understand why anybody in the leadership over there would think that, you know, uh, firing medium range ballistic missiles at Israel uh, is a good idea, especially when everybody knows they were manufactured in Iran. Yeah, it, and I, I do think that's actually a great point, right? Um, that that Iran does have this kind of degree of separation from the conflict. I think we were talking about this a bit earlier, but maybe not in this context. Um, but uh, Iran does have this degree of separation in the conflict, right? And they don't necessarily, like you just said, they don't even have to respond. And at the end of the day, they're still fighting the U.S. essentially, or uh, and our allies and partners and, and Israel in the region by uh, without actually using their conventional forces. Um, arguably, the argument could be made the U.S. is doing the same with Russia and Ukraine right now. That's a whole other conversation for Ukraine war podcast, uh, for war report Ukraine podcast. But um, uh, on the China point that Chef just made, I, I think uh, the, the, the you just mentioned, right, they, they're part of this anti-piracy task force, but yet they did nothing, right? And so, like you said, how that sends a signal to international actors all around the world, state actors more so around the world as well, is now, right, they're party to these frameworks, but they don't uphold them because it's either not in their best interest to do so, or it's not in our best interest to do to um, for, for them to help us out. And it makes, you know, we kind of take a hit. Like, what would have happened if 
uh, our, 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 some of our, uh, um, Arlie Burks had gotten hit with some of these missiles and China had done nothing, right? Would that, how would that dynamic played out in the, in the Red Sea? Would, would China have been in trouble? Because these, this is literally their responsibility. And I think the big thing here, right, this is a volunteer task force. Right? They volunteered for these responsibilities and once again, yet did nothing. But right? I'm going to keep saying that quote, right? They did nothing and they volunteered for this. And so that's going to send the, 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 the signal to, and the message uh, to a lot of other countries, not only just in the region, but in the world, right? So when I sign a piece of paper with China, are they only going to uphold their side of the, the framework or treaty or whatever agreement we make only when they see fit? And that's the problem you have to kind of confront yourself with when you're dealing with authoritarian nations like China. And this is a whole other conversation that I definitely you know love to have, maybe with Sino talk or something like that. But, you know, we see China do this, you know, be party to agreements, treaties and frameworks that they don't uphold their their uh, responsibilities in within the bounds of these frameworks because they don't see fit to do so or they don't think it benefits them directly. And so we see this play out there and who knows, maybe this will kind of move a part of a part of the spin, maybe move back influence in the Indo-Pacific region more towards the United States as nations kind of see like, oh, China's doing nothing in Israel. And the thing is they claim to be um, neutral, right, in this conflict, China, right? But their, their rhetoric is like, eerily like not neutral right it, you know they're, they they're really ambiguous on a lot of things but but sometimes the things they choose to be ambiguous about is indicative of who they're kind of supporting who they're kind of putting you know their lot in with um and so i do think china's action is, is has been very telling uh or lack of uh or lack of action has been very telling in this conflict so far yeah everybody everybody wants to be a superpower until it's time to do superpower shit and um that's, you know, I, I, the actions of, of American naval forces recently down there and uh, the lack of action by China, you know, I'll take it as a small win for us on the international stage um, because that, that is showing to anybody who is looking that at, you know, America might be in decline depending on who you ask, but uh, when it's time to, to do what is required of a superpower and live up to those responsibilities, we still have the capability to act and, uh, and do what, you know, what is required or what, what we agree to. Moreover, though, China may not do what they are, what they are agreed to do and may not provide that umbrella of security to a smaller nation uh, that they, you know, are counting on uh, for something unplanned like this to happen. Yeah, and I think that's a big point to make too as well. I think I'd, I'd uh, piggyback on top of that point by saying, right, we've seen uh, other you know, state actors, we've seen other nations, who the U.S. may not necessarily be on super good terms with right now. We butted heads with recently, like France, for instance, right? But they still upheld their responsibilities and 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 did and uh, upheld their obligations to these frameworks, right? It was, a, I believe, it was a French ship that responded uh, to one of the uh, to the uh, with Somali pirates responded or was in the area and was uh, shown as responding at least, let's say, um, with some of the American Naval uh, Service combatants that responded as well. Um, and this is the same instance where the Chinese did nothing. And then, then the, obviously after the fact, was fired. But the French, right, are upholding their, their part of these treaties and frameworks that they're part of. Even just because they're butting heads with the United States does not mean they're gonna let us take the hit, right? Because they're, they're beholden to do this stuff, right? And so China doesn't operate like that. Um, and so it's interesting to see uh, and, and, you know, there's a lot of things we don't know as well, like, right? Did we, um, 
did we kind of take point on on responding to this? Did we said tell the Chinese, hey, fall back. You don't have to do anything. But but I, you know the reason I say no is because we the the DOD themselves said that the Chinese were in the region and did nothing. And I don't think if that were the case, they would have even mentioned that the Chinese did nothing. They would have mentioned something along the lines of there were two other Chinese warships in the region, but they didn't have to respond or something like that. They wouldn't have said it so matter of factly, right? Um, and you know it's interesting the Chinese haven't really responded that much about that incident. To be honest, um, they've been you know once again more vagaries kind of come from the pulpit of the. Uh, of the uh, PLA and the uh, CCP, um, which is kind of a normal thing when we see these conflicts going on. And they get specific when they want to be, once again, when it suits them. And so I do think this conflict has definitely kind of thrown them, uh, uh, their um, inaction uh, and their um, action and their, their kind of a gray zone, not necessarily gray zone actions, but you know, kind of how they try and subvert the rule of law without actually doing anything. Um, by letting letting someone else subvert the rule of law because I, I would assume that they would have had to see these missiles they would have had to gotten distress call and all these things right they're working in the same networking stuff that because it's a task force i assume they they have um worked in comms with each other and things like that so they would have seen all this stuff going on right they would have tracked these missiles they would have not made the decision not to shoot them down um uh, uh, I'm not going to fault the French vessel because obviously the United States, you know, the U.S. vessels were probably like, hey, we'll take point on this, this type of stuff. Obviously, they, they because uh, the DLD never mentioned anything um, uh, uh, bad about the, the French vessels and how they acted in that action, not to get too far away from the subject at hand, though. Yeah, well, China's, uh, they've had this task force in the region for, for a very long time. I want to say the better part of better part of a decade um so yeah i find it very hard to believe that they they uh didn't know that these missiles were were incoming you know when this incident happened um and I, that presence has been continuous you know i mean when when one of the task force uh when it's time for them to go home they'll have another one come in right and they'll kind of rip out kind of tell the re replacing uh task force like here here's what's going on and then you'll have like two task force in the same place for like a, a week or something like that. But my point is like, they have a, a continuous presence in the area with this task force, you know, and they have for the better part of a decade. So I find it very hard to believe they didn't know uh, what was going on at the time, but let's, uh, let's move into the ground operation in Gaza. So the last time we recorded this again, this was October 24th. A lot's happened since then. So at that point, there was some small like shaping operations kind of going on in northern Gaza. You had a few localized raids and stuff like that. Then on the 27th, a few days after we recorded, that's when the thing like fully kicked off in northern Gaza. And I have a map below if you guys want to look at that just as we kind of go over the uh, territorial changes right now. So when the invasion was launched, you had three axes. Uh, you had one in the vicinity of Yet Hanun, which is in the northeast on the border with Israel, another one in Yet uh, Lahia in the northwest, and then you had a third one that was just north of Wadi Gaza, and that actually uh, pushed all the way to the Gazan coastline. So that axis and uh, the one in Yet Lahia actually linked up eventually, and they encircled and pushed on Gaza City. That siege began on November 2nd, and the IDF is actually still clearing that out right now. So uh, they definitely have, they've had a fight on their hands for sure. At this point, again, this is December 7th. Uh, they are focusing most of their efforts in the north on Jabalia 
in the Jabalia refugee camp, which is to the north of the city. It looks like they're taking pretty heavy resistance there in uh, Jabalia, definitely more than they did in uh, the initial push in Gaza City, for sure. Now, I kind of, obviously, this isn't, uh, this is kind of anecdotal, right? But I was looking at the casualty numbers. So from the time that they launched this in October 7th to the time that the ceasefire began, um, or I'm sure, I should say the time the ceasefire ended, which was on December 1st, they'd taken 70 uh, KIAs. And since December 1st, they're up at 89, right? So they've taken 19 KAs in the week since that happened. So they've taken about 2.7-ish KAs every day post-ceasefire. Pre-ceasefire, they were taking about 2.3-ish. Again, that's kind of anecdotal, but to me, it it seems like they're, they're facing more resistance on their hands. And of course, as they're encircling uh, Jabalia in the refugee camp. I mean, that kind of makes sense, right? Hamas is, they're withdrawing. They're surrounded, right? Now they're kind of digging in their heels and fighting. And I, I don't know if I ever wanted to elaborate more on this because he, he, he's been actually writing some great stuff and I've had some good conversations with him about kind of the small unit tactics that have been going on um, uh, in, in the in Gaza and now in the south um, and, and how, you know, how the IDF has been fighting, how, how the uh, Hamas has been fighting. Um, but uh, we, we have seen and just one thing before Shep, you know, kind of takes it is uh, we have seen that increase. And in, in it seems like uh, multiple times just today, not maybe, maybe not multiple times, but at least three times, I've seen today, you know, a new statement from the IDF saying that so, so-and-so, you know, has is, is now a casualty of this of this ongoing war. Whereas earlier, you know, you kind of said it before, Bodhi, but, um, it was few and far between, and it was kind of spotted casualties they were taking. A lot of them were um, non-fatal, they, they weren't fatalities, um, and, or they were suffering non-mortal wounds, right? Um, so that's a big thing, but I, I do think the fighting maybe has changed a bit as well. We see we're seeing less armor, and I think we're seeing more, you know, more you know squad level, you know, stuff going on. I don't, and Chef can definitely elaborate that. Yeah, well, you know, and and real quick, uh, I forgot to mention this, but in the very opening stages of the ground operation in late November, uh, you actually had an incident where nine guys were killed when their APC got hit with a missile, right? So that uh, you know nine guys out of the 70 that were killed up until December 1st. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty big number and that definitely contributes to the average of casualties, you know, they were taken per day. So if that was, you know, one or two KAs instead, uh, that would have brought the average down a lot. So again, that tells me that they're seeing more resistance. And of course, they're fully operating in the South now too, right? Which you have to imagine when they were telling people to go from the north to the south, you got to imagine that a lot of Hamas militants went with them, right? And this is just another place for them to kind of dig their heels in and fight. Okay, maybe we don't resist as much in the north because we're going to draw them into the south. And that's where we're going to dig in our heels and have this final battle against the IDF. Yeah, John John mentioned armor and me and him... Uh... Uh, offline, I've been uh, discussing uh, this issue uh, quite a bit, 
And I remember collectively between between the last time we got together and now we came to the conclusion uh, together and we kind of had a, a, a pretty a pretty solid uh, confirmation on this from another source that the IDF had been discarding conventional uh, armored strategy when dealing with uh, highly urbanized terrain, which was rolling in with, with extensive infantry support, close infantry support for all its vehicles, that they had discarded that due to their, uh, I guess, good intel that uh, Hamas didn't have anything heavy enough to get through, uh, you know, their MBTs and their their heavier APCs. I believe it's called the Demir. Yeah. The, uh, yeah. The, and we we came to the conclusion that because their intel had, had come had known that that they had uh, switched up their strategy and decided to keep their guys buttoned up and roll armor in without infantry support or with a minimal amount of infantry support. Uh, because why expose your guys to uh, medium machine gun fire uh, when you could keep them in a modern vehicle, especially when you know that nothing they got is going to actually penetrate. You might get a mobility kill, but we'll drag your vehicle out. You guys will be okay. Now that they have that, that little enclave surrounded um, and are moving into it, uh, just because of the geography and the, the nature of the battle now is that shrinks down it's going to force them to get out of the vehicle, right? So that means infantry. That means that means they're you know they're going to have to fight at the squad level, at the fire team level, building to building, going through that rubbleized area uh, with rifles and confront those guys, uh, you know, man to man, so to speak. And that means casualties. So I'm not I'm not surprised we're seeing a slight increase in in, uh, in disclosed casualties coming out of the IDF. Um, I, I think there's you know, great strategy if you had that intel for what they were facing. I think it was a smart move on their part uh, to do that in the initial stages and up till now. And they probably are still taking as much of a heavy armor, you know, centric approach as they can. But when you get those guys surrounded in an enclave like that, if they're still putting up stiff resistance, you're going to at some point have to go in there with rifles and grenades and clear that out. And that as good as your infantry may be, which IDF infantry is good. Uh, they've been, you know, getting a lot of flack from some of the, you know, the armchair military experts with a lot more, you know, academic credentials than all three of us, because, you know, as of late, they've been getting some, you know, some flack due to their uh, um, reserve status. Oh, it's a reserve army. Oh, it's a well-trained and well-equipped militia, et cetera, et cetera. You've been hearing, hearing that coming from, from certain avenues, but they're still pretty good. They got a good infantry. They got a good uh, NCO corps. They may have a you know very reserve centric focus, but all of those guys live together. They've trained together, you know, and they've got a good esprit de corps, and they want to be there. And that goes a long way towards mitigating some of those concerns about it being a reserve force. When you got a lot of guys that live together, that you know you know live in the same city, that know each other, they might not be as good. From our point of view, looking at, you know, what we're used to with a, a Marine infantry platoon or an Army infantry platoon from the 82nd or some unit that we talk about over here, uh, they may not look at the part. Some of their tactics might be a bit off, but their uh, their will to fight uh, will probably mitigate some of that. They have good infantry. But even with that solid, good infantry going into an enclave like that gun to gun, you're going to take casualties. So the, the, it. Their numbers and those numbers will probably increase uh, as as they shrink that down and wipe out that resistance. Even with some of the 
you know, even as firepower heavy as they are, even as cast heavy as they are, even as, as casualty resistant as they've been being, they're going to have to go in there with guns and clear those guys out. And, and they're, they're going to, they're going to haul a few more boys out in body bags. Yeah. Well, they also have tunnels to worry about too, right? That's definitely yeah, something you have to take into account as well. Yeah. And so with the tunnels, I think that's a, a good segue into the tunnels as well. We, we've heard reports as well that, uh, the, I mean, and also some video, uh, is it confirmed now that they are now pumping the seawater into the tunnels? Right, we it, it, that was that was it was posited that that's why those hundred uh, Hamas fighters surrendered earlier, um, be, be because they came out. But the, the thing is, right, we've seen one video of Hamas, you know, swimming under these tunnels, um, and I haven't seen. I feel like we would have seen much more. And then I'm not trying to be that one person who's saying, well, because we didn't see it on video, it's not happening, right? You know, I was talking to somebody before who was telling me that. Um, you know, uh, you know, tankers in the Ukra uh, Russell Ukrainian war aren't using their coaxial machine guns because he's never seen a video of it, right? I don't want to be that person, <laughs> but you know, and, you know, I, I hate those people with a passion. I don't want to be that person, but I, I just do think we would have seen many, not just videos, but a lot of reports about if this was really happening. And then there's also this whole aspect of right, aren't the hostages supposed to be in these tunnels, right? So why would you pump it full of seawater? Yeah. <laughs> And, and, and so uh, obviously the IDF, um, like he said, right, while there's this big reserve component, like Shep just said, they, they are still, I think I would still call them a very professional force because I would call our reserve elements professional, right, I'll be, you know, in the same way. And so I think just because they're reserve, right, reserve isn't the same way like the Rosgardi in Russia. And I think sometimes people look at it in that light, right, that, that is an unprofessional force, I would call it that. They were, the Russians, just to give an example, right, to maybe expound a bit on what Shep was just talking about. The Russians had to decide through Parliament whether or not they were going to give them, uh, not, well, not Parliament, but the Duma, whether or not they were going to give them heavier weapons. And it was a huge deal. It was all over Raya and uh, Raya Novosti and, uh, and, and all the other news organizations. when they And they gave them, a, a, I think, quote, was expanded uh, responsibilities and powers within the border regions because they, they obviously had to. They committed so much of their, their normal conventional force to the war in Ukraine. They're strapped now for men. And so they... They gave them new powers and they gave them BTRs and some armored and a lot of armored vehicles that they didn't have before. But they were really apparently there's a big thing going on because they didn't want to give it to them because they are an unprofessional force. Right? We saw what happened to these Guardia units in um in 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 a lot of these battles in Ukraine, and they they essentially pulled them back from you know feeding them. That's kind of why they went so hard on the prisoners because the prisoners are fighting better than the Guardia units. So and and that's why they give them a lot of responsibilities in the border. To bring it back to the Israel uh, uh, the Israel Hamas war, um, th this is a different force we're talking about here. These guys are way more professional. I think they live a different lifestyle. You could even say than your than your average guy in the Rosh Guardia unit. Not to be that, not to make the normal Slav Russian joke that you know they they all live lives so, of you know they're drowning in vodka and stuff like that. But I, I do think there's a different mentality in 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 the Israel Reserve Force versus versus the Ross Guardia, obviously. And so um these are two different forces we're talking about. And I think that a lot of people have been positive, right? That they are unprofessional, which I just I do think on its face is false. Um uh yeah, because we've seen we've seen their conduct as well, right? They're not running around killing civilians. They're not running around shooting at anything, right? They take fire, they respond, right? We I think we saw a good example of that reserve engineer unit in a, a couple of days ago or yesterday that that um they thought they thought they'd include a building. I believe they were kind of just, you know, resting in place kind of thing, doing, you know, they're kind of just sitting there. Um, they took fire and, you know, they, they closed with really quick and they destroyed the enemy inside that building. Um, 
and, and and I mean, I'm I'm not in the force. I never was, so I can't say how professionally they went about it, right? But you know, they they weren't just running around just shooting at random things because they took fire. It was, it was, they quickly, you know, figured out where the fire was coming from, and they um and they eliminated that uh source of the fire. So I, I just it, it and Shepard's right. There have been a lot of people, academics, people who are way smarter than me and you guys, who have been saying, well, because because of this, this is why, and I I'd have to push back on that heavily. So. I'm great. I'm glad that Shep mentioned that because I haven't seen that a lot, and it kind of kind of been irking me. So I've been kind of waiting for somebody to mention it so that I don't sound like that uneducated guy <laughs> who doesn't know what he's talking about. So I'm glad that somebody a little smarter than me when it comes to this stuff uh, would mention it as well. Thank you. Yeah, and even even just since the war started, from from the open source stuff that we've been getting, and the, you know, I I've said it five times already, you know, both on the bulletin and on here on our last show, but the, the GoPro and other devices like it are, are awesome for people like us. Cause these, these guys are addicted to strapping this stuff to their gear and putting it out there. And I'll just eat all, I'll eat it up and I'll pick it apart. And so will you guys, but it's great. Ever since October 7th, you know, we've been watching, um, you know, they're, you know, and, and, you know, I have a, I have an eye for this. Brody has an eye for this. Cause you know, you want to critique other forces, right? You want to look at the, Oh, what are these guys doing? You know, we've seen them on the news and, and there was some stuff when they were mobilizing these units initially, their, their dispersion sucked in what I was seeing, you know, some of their weapons handling was like, Hey, that's, that's the IDF. You know, they got a reputation. They're not supposed to be doing that. You know, there's certain little things you're seeing. They're like, what's he doing? You know? And just in the last, you know, few weeks, month plus um, you've seen that improvement. So now, you know, you're looking at footage of guys that are perfectly dispersed. Their dispersion looks good. Their, their weapons handling looks good. They're cutting corners well. Uh, they're pieing off windows. They're pieing off danger areas in a, in a nice manner. They're crossing danger areas with cover. Uh, they're, doing, they're doing things that I would look at or Brody would look at or even you would look at, John, and go, oh, yeah, okay. That's, that's guys that have been doing it for a while. So you can tell that, and, and that's a, you know, I, I was a drilling reservist at one time. And that goes, you know, when you do get back into that full-time uh, mentality, you've been trained, you've been to the training schools, you've been mobilized before, it goes away. But as you get there, a couple of weeks later, you fall back in and it all comes back to you. So we, you know, for me personally, I've seen an improvement in the small unit tactics of the IDF just in the last few weeks compared to when, you know, when CNN and everybody else had a camera on them on October 8th, 9th and 10th, and you're going, Oh man, guys, this doesn't look too good to now seeing like, okay, that looks professional. Those guys know what they're doing. They're doing it the right way. So we've seen that improvement already. Yeah. And I think that's a great example, right? The, the, the ability to learn battlefield lessons, right? We, we see, you know, conscript Russian forces not doing this, and or, or arguably sometimes Ukrainian forces in the ongoing war up there, right? Not doing this, right? They're not. They're doing the same thing. They're still, I think, a dispersion. If if I'm understanding correctly, right? Just not bunching up together, so I can't drop a grenade on you from a drone. And like we saw that one video, uh, in, in early on in the offensive, uh, where where, where they were dropping grenade. But we haven't really seen any more. And I think that's a a good thing is that that's kind of what separates a professional force from an unprofessional force is the one of the biggest things the ability to learn battlefield lessons everyone's going to make a mistake what's the saying that goes right the um the uh right obviously the enemy has a plan too and uh something's always going to go wrong in the battlefield right something yeah, along the those enemy lines gets right? a vote, no matter how hard you uh plan exactly train. yeah and, and so and so right the the idea right is well not the idea well, what you should do is right if you make a mistake 
you correct. And, and, and if you have to correct, you know, a hard correction. And so we see the IDF doing that. We see them, like, like Shep said, as they're, I can't maybe speak to more of the tactical aspects of, of the battlefield, but just from an operational standpoint, we see them doing things differently. Um, there are, they're doing the, in the South, they understood that they had to, you know, do the South differently from, uh, 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 northern Gaza. Um, I think one thing, and the, the things that work, they're still doing it, right? The idea of pocketing and then reducing that pocket, right? The pocketing in northern Gaza still isn't clo- is closed now, but it's, they haven't reduced it, right? But it's now closed, right? No one's getting out of there. We, and we see them do the same thing, but way, way faster. In the first day of operations in the South, you saw how fast they cut across Gaza uh, um, to close that pocket. They definitely learned, um, obviously, that way. We don't want these guys to keep going south, right? And obviously, eventually, I think this may involve a little bit of, from more a strategic and operational standpoint, this may, Egypt may not have to get involved on the, uh, necessarily going into Gaza, but we, we're obviously seeing uh, Egypt kind of surge, for, not surge forces, but bolster their border heavily uh, on the, near the Rafa crossing and other crossings on their border with the Gaza Strip, I think, because inevitably this conflict is going to spill into Egypt, arguably it already has, right? There's nine casualties in Egypt that, have, that can be more or less be connected to this conflict. Um, uh, Bodhi mentioned that before. Um, and, and so, but just go back to my point before, we see the IDF doing things differently and the things that are working, they're still doing and compounding on the things that are working. And so um, they're not compounding on mistakes like we see non-professional forces do in other conflicts around the world. Um, they're correcting these mistakes. And I think that's a big thing that differs them, in, in especially in, as well as the reserve element from other forces. Uh, around the world kind of moving on from that uh as i was saying earlier the the operation in south gaza is is fully underway as well right so they're not just solely focusing on the north Uh, this is going on you know wide across the gaza strip they're pushing into the center of khan yunus which is the second largest city in gaza and that's also a major stronghold for hamas you know just as gaza city is up in the north and uh, jabalia as well uh, two prongs have been moving into the city from the northeast and the east. Israel claims the city is surrounded. Uh, personally, I haven't seen any open source evidence to support that right now. And then a uh, war mapper whose map we are currently using right now has not seen any either. So that's that's where the big fight in the south uh, is right now. They're definitely facing some resistance from Hamas in that area and that's pretty much where things lie as far as the ground operation goes uh you know if and if and when they are able to encircle and uh, secure con Yunus, i don't i don't really know where they go from there obviously there's a lot of land in between con Yunus and gaza city that uh, israel is not currently operating in and then of course you have uh, the land all the way to the rafa crossing with egypt in the south um, so they're they're making some some good progress for sure, but this is going to be a long operation. As as BB has you know already already said it would be too. You know he's been preparing his population for a long war, and it, and it will be. That's pretty much yeah, where that, we're at. Yeah, and and I think the last thing that I guess the only thing that's left right is the hostages. Right, the situation with the hostages that uh, right about a hundred have been released. Um, now arguably right, Hamas said they had way more. Um, now. I think all three of us were saying that uh, uh, and have been saying for a while, right? And many, as of many others, that Hamas can't possibly have as many hostages as they say they have. A lot of these hostages probably died um, uh, in the uh, in the initial attacks on October 7th, or they, they, you know, they were wounded, they died after, or were even killed in Israeli airstrikes. That is a vibe, that is a thing that could have happened. Like, um, 
uh, obviously, you know, they were pounding Gaza. Um, uh, and, and so the thing is, I, I think just a quick recap, right? They obviously, they extended the ceasefire. They put the ceasefire in and, and they were going to do 10 hostages a day. Hamas wasn't even able to fulfill that for about a day and a half. They the second day after the extension. They couldn't even fulfill that. And I believe that, personally, I believe that's because they just didn't have the hostages. So right, they're, they're coming to the table and making these agreements that they can't even uphold. Um, uh, because it, it, in the in truth, they knew that they didn't have these hostages. Or, um, and it, the, it's weird the way they worded it too. Um, uh, if I remember correctly, Hamas worded like, we don't know where they are even, I think that they were saying, right? So I think what they were doing is they were looking at this list of the missing that, that um, Israel is saying, Israel saying are hostages and like, yeah, we have them, we, we have them, we definitely have those guys, whether you know those women and children. Um, but they didn't, in fact, right? Um, uh, and I, the sad thing is, I don't know how many of these people are going to be recovered, right? Obviously, uh, Shani Lewick, uh, they found her skull fragments, I believe. Like, that's how they were able to identify her from skull fragments. So, I mean, if, and, and that was re- recent, fairly early on, only two hostages have been uh, actually rescued during the operation, right? Um, and those were, if I'm correct, those were IDF soldiers, were they? Um, yes. Yes, they were. Yeah. And, and so, uh, obviously, uh, Hamas would probably put more effort into, you know, uh, keeping some IDF soldiers alive, you know, as a bargaining chip, right? And, and so the idea um, of the hostages being a bargaining chip is definitely a big thing as well. Um, but, uh, yeah, so so I, I do think that's a, a big thing as well. I think the hostages will have, will be less in the limelight now as the operations uh, on the ground go on more. Um, so, so honestly, we'll see. Um, and I think the big question in everyone's mind is, do they have any more and I personally don't. I personally don't think they do because I think they would have. They Hamas would have wanted this operational pause to last as long as they possibly can, um, uh, you know, to kind of recoup and uh, not only resupply but also lick their wounds a bit. So, um, and the fact that they weren't able to fulfill their their you know obligations to this you know of this you know, as being a party to the ceasefire may be indicative of the fact that they don't have any more. Um, I don't think it was just them being like, no, we don't want to give any more, right? No, they just don't have any more. Um, and uh, 100 is kind of about where I thought they would kind of cap out too. Honestly, I didn't even think they had 100 hostages. Um, so it's been, and I definitely think they got, last thing I would say, they definitely got back way more people, obviously, right? Um, e- even if they had gone by the, the agreed framework uh, of how it was going to be, right? They, they, they got back more people. It was like they gave 10, they got like 30 back or something like that of people. And, the, and so a lot of these guys, people are like fighters who they've captured and things like that. They're not innocent civilians that Israel went in and, and and you can get into politics of that situation, but we're not going to do that necessarily. But a lot of these people are fighters, right? So we're giving back combatants for people you stole from us, civilians, right? Men, women, uh, old people, elderly women and children, right? So it, it's it's a pretty lopsided thing. And so obviously I think they would try to leverage that as long as they can. And the fact they couldn't may be indicative of the fact they don't have any more people. Yeah, I mean, as, as far as hostages go, I mean, Hamas is, has... They were not the only organization that took hostages. You know, PIJ took some as well. Of course, they flowed across the border just like Hamas did on the 7th. Um, You know, obviously Hamas controls the Gaza Strip. And at the end of the day, PIJ is going to do what Hamas tells him to do, right? Otherwise, you know, Hamas would just kill him just like they did with the Palestinian Authority back in the 06 or 07. Um. But, you know, it's possible that PIJ is hiding some people, right? Or maybe Hamas is just too stubborn to give them up. You know, I know they really 
really didn't want to give up um, military age males during this ceasefire. You know, they only, for the most part, they gave women and children, um, obviously some foreigners who are not, not Israeli, right? Some Thai and Filipino workers who were just there on contract work. And then um, a couple dual national Russian Israelis, as well as kind of like a gesture to Putin. But I, they're claiming that they have some men left now do they i don't know i think there is a legitimate question as to how many hostages have been killed since they've been taken to gaza right i mean you've had really three at least three that are confirmed to have died because israel has found two bodies and now they're also saying that a colonel whose name escapes me uh that was taken on the seventh he is confirmed to be dead as well and it's thought that he actually died a long time ago not uh not that long after he was taken into gaza but I, it's hard for me to believe that there's not more hostages that have been had been killed since then. So there's just there's a lot we don't know in terms of uh, hostages. But let's um start to close it off here. Just got one last thing that I wanted to discuss, and we'll make it quick. Last time we talked about, you know, basically how Israel could get surprised by an attack like this. They have the reputation for having some of the best intelligence agencies in the world, and obviously they earn that reputation for a reason. Now, the New York Times has been reporting recently, and again, these are just reports. So the New York Times is claiming that they came to this conclusion through emails and interviews and uh, interceptive phone calls and such like that. And they took a lot of flack for their reporting um, from that uh, hospital fiasco. Um, that hospital that was not bombed by the Israeli Air Force. They took a lot of flack from that, rightfully so, because they took what they were hearing from Hamas at face value. They're being a little more cautious with this report, but I still want to make it clear that we're taking this with a grain of salt. They're claiming that Israel knew key details of Hamas's attack plans for at least a year uh, before October 7th. So, for example, Israel didn't know that this attack was going to take place on October 7th, but allegedly they kind of gathered Hamas's battle plans, which I think they codenamed Jericho Wall or something like that. It's like a 40-page document. And New York Times is basically saying that Hamas followed these battle plans damn near down to a T. So we talked about, you know, how we could have a scenario where Israel surprised like this and you know, if this New York Times report is true, I think we kind of have a better idea now, right? Because our intelligence corps was finding out about these plans and a couple people raised the alarm. You had senior officials in the Gaza division that were like, eh, you know, like, okay, I don't really think they could pull this off. So we'll kind of just like leave it at that. And that's where we are. But, but I think uh, if I remember correctly, the way uh, Shep, uh, you, you said it best, I think last in the last episode of when we touched on this, is that uh, all it takes is that one person to not like, kick that memo up to the next person or or you don't get that. I believe the way you framed it was the guy you went to university from who works in e Egyptian intelligence, you know, ignore the memo that he sent you or something like that. Um, and I, I really liked it kind of how you framed that because it is something as small as that. All you need is one person or two people in this instance to not take something seriously. All you need is that one person who has that position of, uh, uh, you know, someone in hire to be like, hey, you know, this isn't, this is not, a, a, they're not going to do this, right? This isn't serious. We can kind of back, uh, we can put this on the back burner right now uh, in level of seriousness, if you want to say that. Um, and I, I, I do think maybe in a way uh, that's kind of what happened. 
do I think they sat there and were like, watched them doing this stuff and were like, okay, we know they're going to do this, right? Um, let's let him do it because it's going to, it's going to help BB, right? I, I don't think that. I think that's how, how a lot of people are framing this, this new article, I think. And I, when, when they set out to write this article, I don't think they were, that's what they're trying to insinuate. Um, but meant, of course, everyone, a lot of people are doing that, right? Um, and I don't think that that's kind of right. Uh, I, obviously, I don't think Mossad is that a beholden to BB, first of all, right? And, and Israeli intelligence is that beholden to BB in that in that way. There's other ways that I would say they kind of are um, uh, when it comes to operations internationally and other things like that. But um, I, I just don't see them sitting there, like sitting there and letting this happen. Like a lot of people are trying to frame this. Um, but I do think it's an intelligence failure in that they didn't take the threat seriously. And I, I do think that's kind of essentially what happened here. Yeah, well, you know, last time Shep said um, it could be complacency, right? And if this New York Times report is accurate, of course, we don't know. But if it's accurate, it kind of looks like that's what the case. You know, this it, it got kicked up by this uh, veteran intelligence analyst to this colonel in the Gaza division. And he looked at it and he said... Okay, well, yeah, it's interesting, but I don't really think they can pull this off. So we'll kind of just leave it at that. Yeah, you know, it's a bureaucracy like like any other bureaucracy. Uh, they have a reputation uh, and they, you know, intelligence agencies tend to, when they develop a reputation like that, they love to cultivate it. You know, they love to keep it going because that reputation itself is a deterrent, right? And, you know, it's really, you know, the shin bet. Assad are no different, but something like this, you know, and, and conspiracies are real. They are, all right? We, they, we, we have identifiable conspiracies in history that we can point to and say, yes, that happened, that was going on. Um, but, you know, you never, never attribute to malice what can be explained by incompetence. And it, this, you know, the, 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 everybody wants to point the finger and say, oh, this is convenient, or they knew about this, or they, you know, we, we told them. And, and maybe all that is true. Maybe a lot of, you know, I... I or something like this, and is you know, then, then you gotta you gotta think about uh, the IDF and their targeting of key Hamas, you know, figures in in Gaza, and how they're claiming that their their targeting is so good that they they got this guy's ten digit grid when he's going to the can, and we're like, well, if your intel's that good, well, how come you didn't know about this huge operation that was going on that that just surprised you guys all of a sudden? And it is hard to explain. But I think it can be explained by incompetence at some level or complacency. Um, you know, who would have thought that something like this was going to happen? Who would have thought that they were just going to fly across the border, uh, you know, and parasail in and do all this kind of stuff? And it probably, you know, again, sometimes stuff seems too fantastical that at a certain level of the hierarchy, a certain level of the leadership, you know, that gets, you know, either thrown in the, thrown in the shredder, sat, sat under the pile over here, like, yeah, maybe we'll see about that. Um, I don't think there's any any type of, you know, any of the more extreme types of theories out there that are being floated around from the fringe. But, I, I, you know, the Times may be right in their reporting. I say may because it's the New York Times and their reputation isn't what it was. Uh, but, you know, I think it, you know, if that's true, it can be, it can be, explained by by incompetence complacency and all of that stuff that that that, uh, that takes effect when you um <laughs> when you're you know uh, afflicted with your own you're a victim of your own success you know they've been the best for so long they have that reputation and uh you know when they have a mistake uh it's magnified 
because of that. Yeah, you know, Shep, I'm sure you uh, heard this many times as I did in my uh, time in the Marine Corps, but I'm going to I'm going to quote this uh, generic line complacency kills. And, uh, you know, it, it may just be that simple. But lads, I think uh, we got to get going here. So we'll uh, we'll close it out. I want to thank you both for being here. We'll have to get together sometime soon and do this again, you know, not wait a, a month and a half before we do another one. I'm sure a lot's going to happen. By yeah, definitely. We do another we'll episode. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Yeah, let's do it again. Okay, boys. Well, uh, thanks again for being here, and I'll see you soon. Yep. All right, guys. Everybody, thank you for listening to that episode, and thank you for supporting this podcast. Of course, all your support means a lot to me. You can find this podcast on your favorite apps. That includes Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, we're there. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Analyze Educate. That is all one word. Please consider supporting us again on Patreon, Ko-Fi, or Substack. You can find all those links in the show notes below. Be sure to leave us a five-star rating on the app used to listen to this podcast. That helps us out a lot as well. That is all I have for you guys right now. I'll see you soon.